Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, whatever, however, depending on early, how early you woke up. When, is, uh, when do we do the little switch? Oh, we're still a ways away. I, I, I hate this one, but you get an extra hour of sleep, right? That's the only good part. But the night comes earlier, which I don't like. Okay, so today's a little different. And that before we get into the sermon, I'm going to do a brief budget presentation. And if you've been coming to the church for quite some time, you know that once a year we do this. Uh, we present to you how we did last year, the previous 12 months with what was planned for the budget and then the actual, so how we actually met goals or whether we didn't. And then we look ahead for the next 12 months. Now, typically this takes place in mid to late summer because our fiscal year, our budgetary year goes from July to July, not from January to December. Now, we're a little late to the game in this presentation because just frankly, it's been very difficult to do, and you might know this personally, financial planning uh, in the midst of uh, pandemic restrictions, openings, those ever-changing kind of realities. In addition, um, a lot of our church is still watching online. Uh, believe it or not, there's still a decent portion of people watching online. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of just been a weird state. But nevertheless, we wanted to present to you what the elders have approved for the budget. And then at the end of this service, as you leave, we also ask you to give your vote of approval for it so that it's been approved by the elder board. And then we also, in addition to that, to that ask for congregational member approval. So in the handouts, there was a little ballot. You can fill that out, put your name and information on there. And then we have people stationed at every door so you can't get out of here without putting it in some, some basket. Uh, also on top of that, after service, uh, our business manager, Dean Snyder, will be in the back room right here. It's called the conference room. It's literally just on the other side of this wall. You can take one of these two doors and take five steps if you take this one, take five steps and turn left. If you go this one, five steps and take right and take a right turn, and he'll be in there. Now, the reason why we do this is this. We've learned over the years that the vast major majority of you do not want a giant, long, hour-long presentation of the budget. Most people just want a big picture. They want to know how we're doing, how we did, where we're going. And so for Sunday, we present a kind of brief overview, a big picture, give you the details, the meat of it. And then for those of you who want more detailed information, there's been a packet the last two weeks at the Connect table for you to actually see some of the breakdowns. And then on top of that, if you have further questions or comments or concerns, our business manager, Dean Snyder, will be in the back and you can talk with him directly after service. So on that note, let's get into it. A lot of numbers right off the bat. I'm going to go through them slowly, and I promise you they'll make sense. So what I'd like to do is first address what was the plan from July 2020 to July 2021. So think not right now, but what did we plan to do in that period? Now, keep in mind, that was like when COVID was at its peak. Those numbers are going to be represented by these two two columns right here. This first is fiscal year 21 budget, and then the next item is fiscal 21 results. So you're going to see the budget, what we predicted, and then the results, how we did to that. Now, clarify note, to the left, you're going to see this, these two items, general funds and miscellaneous. Those are the two big categories for income that comes into the church. And as you can see, the general fund is much larger than the miscellaneous. What that means is the vast majority of monies that come into this church are from giving. It's from our tithes and weekly offerings. There's miscellaneous because there's a couple other ways we make income. Namely, we lease out some, some space to Pacific Point Christian schools for the preschool. And there's a couple other things, but that's why that number's so small. It's not like you know, we got the church got some Airbnbs on, Airbnbs on the side and the pastors are selling timeshares, selling some knives door to door type of thing. It's very small. The vast majority of income is from general funds. And if we go to the bottom, you're going to see total operations income. What we had planned from July 2020 to July 2021 was $2,412,000. What actually came in during that time was $2,728,000, which is a 13% variance. Now, let me tell you what exactly what that means. During the height of the pandemic, during that time frame, this church remained 
faithful in their giving and generosity through some very, very difficult times. And I know many of you personally were in difficult times financially. Things were scary. I can tell you that when the pandemic hit, leadership at the church, we were stressed. I was personally stressed out of my mind. If you, if you, if you told me that we would actually make budget during that time, I, I would not have believed you. But by God's grace and this church's faithfulness, we not only met budget, but we surpassed it. That number 27 also includes uh, an extraordinary gift. So we met budget, and then there was one extraordinary gift that helped us do one thing in particular that I'll get to in a little bit. But what you need to know for today is this number over here, this $2,593,000. What we're projecting for the next year is that the church's income will be roughly $2,593,000. And you can see that's a negative 5%. We are predicting that we will have income short 5% of what we did last year. And the reason for that is because we had one extraordinary gift that helped us go above and beyond to that 13%. But if you look at the numbers, this $2,593,000 is above what was budgeted for last year, but just a hair under what actually came in. So essentially think about it like this. We're looking to roughly target the same thing that we did last year. There's a lot of uncertainties, uh, a lot of unknown variables. We still have a lot of people um, watching online. And so we're, we're kind of trying to, to just play it cool and stick to what we've been doing. But again, the big picture from this is um, I, I can't tell you how... Now I'm, not, I'm not speaking as a pastor right now. I'm speaking as a part of this church family. How proud I am to be a part of, of this, this church as just a family member. Um, for... For us to, to do that during that time was, was absolutely remarkable. And I, I, you can talk to all the people around me. I, no way I thought that that would happen. So it's a testament to your faithfulness and to God's grace. Next, we'll look at the expenses. As you'll see, there's the same two columns, fiscal year 2021 and fiscal year 2021 budget and results. And similar to income, we have this broken down into two main categories, administration and ministries. Administration covers um, our buildings, our facilities, our mortgages, and our leases, and all the maintenance that deals with that. And so that's this line item right there. And then there's the ministry line item for expenses. That covers the actual cost of doing ministry, personnel, salaries, all of that type of stuff. So think one is buildings, maintenance, upkeep, and then one's ministry, and that also includes personnel and salaries and all that good stuff. Those two items come together in this section, total cost. Last year, we predicted that we would spend $2,510,000. What we actually spent was $2,628,000. And that meant we overspent what we were predicting by 5%. Now, you can imagine why we might have had to buy some things uh, that weren't planned for during that year. A lot of technology, a lot of things we weren't expecting to do. You buy one tent, and then you got to buy a second tent, and then you got to buy a third tent. And then for those of you who were attending that time at our outdoor services, by the end of it, we just had one mega tent composed of lots of little tents. Um, so there was our expenses like that. And the good news is in the midst of all of that, we ended up only having to spend 5% more than what was expected. Next year, what we predict going into 2022 is that our expenses will increase roughly 3%. So again, the big picture here is we're kind of tracking close to what our income and expenses were for the previous year. Now, if you come down here to operation incomes versus loss, that has to do with the difference between what you spent and what you brought in that year, income versus expense. When we planned for the year of the pandemic, we actually planned and thought we would come in at negative 98,000. What happened was, and this was hinted at earlier, was that we came in the positive by $100,000. And that's pretty remarkable for that year. And because of that, we were able to do something that we didn't think that we, that we would be close to doing. But if you go down to the bottom line, you're gonna look at operations cash loss gain. You're gonna see that in fiscal year 2021, we overspent here by $599,000. You're going, 
That doesn't make sense. You just said everything was going well. How'd you overspend by $600,000? That $600,000 is because we paid off our mortgage here. And so, many of you know that we had an aggressive 10-year plan where we were double paying on our mortgage to get completely out of that type of debt and mortgage. Well, because things went better than they expected, we were actually able to just take it and pay it off completely during the pandemic year, which again is absolutely remarkable and incredible. Yes, uh, going forward, that was last year. Going forward, um, you're going to see this in parentheses for fiscal year 2022. This is a little tricky, and some of you will understand this because you, you're familiar with accounting practices. But for 2022, it shows us income to loss being down. We're predicting to be down negative $97,000. But what you have to understand is in accounting process, you have to take for account depreciation. And so that's money that we already spent in previous years, and we're just accounting for the depreciation of those assets. In reality, with money on the ground, if you take what we're spending versus what's coming in, we predict that in the next 12 months, we'll be in the positive 12,142. So really simple, expenses for the next 12 months versus income versus the next 12 months is a difference of $12,000 in the positive. So that's the plan. That's what we're, we're hoping for. And, and by God's grace, we'll not only meet it and surpass it so more ministry can take place. So again, um, not just as a pastor, but as, as a member of this church, um, I would not think I'd be standing here today reporting that those were the results of one of the most difficult years for everyone. You personally, in, in your workplace, your finances, if you're a business owner, it's just been very, very difficult. So God has been faithful and you've been generous. And so as we move forward, the plan is pretty close to what it was last year. At the end of service, Drew's gonna remind you and there'll be people at every door. We'd like to get your, your thumbs up on the budget that's already been approved by the elders, but we want your feedback and approval as well. In addition, if there's stuff that I didn't cover you have questions about, our business manager, Dean Snyder, will be in the back and you can ask away. Okay, open your Bibles up to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 15. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, not Leviticus. Uh, and we've built the story up into a very important point. We've seen genealogies, we've seen Mary and Joseph introduced, we've seen Jesus uh, be baptized by a guy named John the Baptist. We've seen Jesus encounter this mysterious, dark, shadowy figure in the wilderness named Satan. And now Jesus has come out of it and he's preparing himself for the beginning of his public ministry. And what we'll cover today is the beginning of this public ministry. And that will transition into next week, which begins the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been given in human history. But this is the setup for it, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. Now, first line, after John had been arrested. This is the ending of the ministry of John the Baptist, the ending of the ministry of the forerunner, and the transition to the ministry of Jesus. Now, this is a good thing, but I want you to pay attention to the fact that the Bible includes this dark note. Yes, it includes the good thing. Jesus is beginning the public ministry, but this sad, dark note that John has been arrested. And if you grew up in church, you're familiar with the New Testament, you know how that guy's story ends. We'll cover that several chapters from now, but ultimately John will be put to death. And the Bible intentionally includes this dark note. And more importantly, the Bible constantly and continually includes these dark, sorrowful, tragic notes. And the reason why that's important is oftentimes people of faith, Christians can be accused of having this sort of pie in the sky, wishful thinking type of faith. Religion is just your crutch. It's a way you, you kind of brush aside all the bad things that happen in the world and you don't acknowledge the bad stuff. But the Bible does not do that. It tells you something about the nature of the Bible and the nature of the Christian faith. 
doesn't hide from that stuff. It looks evil and darkness into the eyes, into their eyes, and acknowledges it. Now, there's a way of, as believers, how we can relate to the dark notes of life. And um, the way you interact with these dark notes changes as you mature in the Christian faith. And so as a new Christian, you might have, I don't want to call it an immature faith. I want to say it's a faith in its infancy. But it, it might look at, say, the worries of tomorrow, something like this. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow because God's going to take care of it. And in a sense, that's good. Like Jesus tells you, don't worry about tomorrow. You got enough problems for today. Don't worry about it. Just trust me. So in one sense, it's good to say, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, God. Uh, you're going to take care of it. The problem with that understanding is sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, eventually at your life, something's going to hit you like a freight train and break you and shatter you. And, and, and your very way of seeing the world will be altered because life will hit you so hard with pain. And then you tell yourself, wait, wait, I thought God was going to take care of it. And he didn't. And so I've seen people lose their faith over this stuff. Their faith fragments and falls apart. Now, there's a more mature way of interacting with these types of dark notes in life. And it's very similar, but it's, it's different in an important way. It says, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow because God's going to take care of it. But even if he leads me into dark times or bad times, I'm still going to trust him and I'm going to follow him because it's better to be in the storm with him than in good times without him. And so you look at Jesus and you say, I trust you. And that doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect and everything will be fine. But I trust you and know it's in your hands. Drew, this wasn't planned. Drew, when you were singing in Christ alone, you, there's a line, no power in hell can ever take me from your hand. Roughly quoted correctly. And and I, and I was thinking to myself, I go, do we have any idea what we're actually singing right now? Do you know how powerful that is? When you proclaim that, no power in hell can touch me unless my God approves of it. Even if I die, I go into his hands. Like, this, there's a reason why we choose the songs that we do. Because when you confess that, when you speak that, that, there's a power in you acknowledging reality as it truly is. And so there's a mature type of Christian faith that says, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. It is not, I will never walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's, even if I do, I'm going to trust you. You're my good shepherd. And I know nothing can pluck me or take me from his hand. I mean, there's power in that. And so we see even in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John's arrested and he's going to die. But yet God's sovereign purposes are still working themselves out because now Jesus is beginning to preach. And it speaks of this fulfillment of this prophecy. It says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, some of you might remember that prophecy kind of sounds familiar. The people in darkness have seen a great light. You know what that's, that's from? It's a Christmas lyric, which now means you all have permission in October, I don't know what the month it is, to start listening to Christmas music. There's a lot of debate about does it start in December or November? At this church, it starts in October. <laughs> it's this idea that this light is shining in Galilee of the Gentiles, even in the region of shadow of, de of death, which is incredibly important because it hints and foreshadows at two things. One, that Jesus' ministry, although it's beginning in Israel, it's beginning in Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles here is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicities. Jesus is coming first and foremost to his people, the Jews in Israel. But the ultimate mission includes the Gentiles, the ethnos. The mission of Christ includes people from every tribe, tongue, and language, all the nations, all the ethnicities. It's the universal nature and scope of the gospel message. 
And then it says, it begins in darkness in the region and shadow of death. So it doesn't begin like in Jerusalem where the religious center is. It goes to the darkest place in Israel. That's where the light shines. And there's this kind of haunting message because the ministry of Jesus begins in the shadow of death. And ultimately at the end of his public ministry, we'll see him face the shadow of death once again. And it goes on, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this one verse is loaded with so much information. There's so much, we could spend so much time on here. But I want to just highlight a few things that we, that we have to address. First, kingdom of heaven. If you were to open up your Bible and read the similar sections to what we're reading in Matthew, you read it in Mark and Luke, say, you'd see some of the same things occurring. But one of the major differences that you would see is that when Jesus is out there preaching, he proclaims the kingdom of God in some of the other gospel accounts. And in Matthew, he's always proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And so at first it seems like, well, are these two different things? Is the kingdom of heaven different than the kingdom of God? And why is Mark quoting Jesus as saying kingdom of God? And now Matthew's saying, well, he's saying kingdom of heaven. You have to understand that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is a Jewish man writing to Jews primarily, and he's taking into account some of their sensibilities, namely that Jews at this time had such a high respect for the name of God and by extension things that related to the name of God, they would often use replacement words to give proper respect to the person of God. And so Sometimes people would not say the Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. They would replace it by saying the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai. And so as a way to say, this name is so sacred and so holy, I don't even want to mention it. Likewise, at the time of Matthew, rather than saying the kingdom of God, Matthew, out of respect to, to God and his audience, is saying, I'm not going to use the word God here. I'm going to say heaven. You might have encountered this. Religious Jews, many religious Jews today still practice customs that are like this. So rather than say the name of God, you might hear the word Hashem. And Hashem in Hebrew is the word for name. So rather than say, for instance, the God of Abraham, they'll say Hashem of Abraham. For some of you who listen to reggae music, you might hear Hashem of Abraham, Hashem of Isaac, and it's just picking up in that tradition. It's saying the name using the Hebrew word for name as a replacement word so that you don't let the word God or his name or something close to its proximity touch your unholy lips type of thing. Another one you might be familiar with is oftentimes um, practicing Jews today, instead of writing the word God, G-O-D, on a piece of paper, they'll put G-D and they'll leave out the O. And the reason for that is it's, it, it's, it's fascinating, is that... Um, they're taking into account the nature of paper in the modern world. So if you were to write on a piece of paper, most likely, where does that paper land? In the garbage, right? Or in the trash, eventually. So they would say, how could I put something as holy as the word God on a document that will ultimately end up in the trash? So they leave out the O and it's representative. That's what's taking place in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll see it take place throughout. Now, the reason why this is so important is because what comes to mind as a modern American speaking English when you hear the word kingdom of heaven is not the same thing as kingdom of God. When you think of heaven, what do you think of? The place you go when you die. It's a location for you once you die. But that is not what Jesus is talking about because Jesus isn't saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and five decades from now, when you're on your deathbed, you can go there. What is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. It's breaking in. The kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdoms of men right now in this moment through the person and work of the true king. That's fundamentally different than a location you go to when you die. God's kingdom is breaking into the kingdoms of men, and it's breaking in, again, namely, in the person of the king, Jesus. That's what he's announcing. He's announcing that, that the rule and reign, when you think kingdom, think rule and reign of the true king is coming to bear on earth. 
the rule and reign of the rightful heir of David, the true king, the son of God, Jesus, his rule, his reign is coming to bear on the kingdoms of men. Now, he's announcing that it's at hand, which would do a number of things to the hearers of that day. Recall if you were here for the first week when we started this series. Remember the historical details. It's been roughly 500 years since a rightful king has sat on the throne of Israel. Roughly 500 years since prophets have spoken, written sacred scripture like they used to. Israel, the people of God, are once again, once again oppressed by an evil empire. And that goes back hundreds of years. First with the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And the Romans are like the biggest and baddest of them all. And so you can imagine fathers in that day saying, I want a better future for my children. I don't want them to grow under the boot of Rome. I don't want them to go, uh, grow up in this environment. And you could see the mother saying, I'm tired of sending our, our sons off to die in order to defend our land. This is our, I thought, God, you promised this and we just die for it. And maybe the older generations would encourage faithfulness, but even in their encouragement of faithfulness, there's the insecurities that they're saying, Lord, I want, I want my children, my grandchildren to be faithful, but it's been hundreds of years since we've been in this position. It sure seems like you've forgotten us. And then there was also like zealots, people who were committed to like guerrilla style warfare tactics, willing to assassinate Roman citizens and Roman leadership. People were ready for war. People had had enough. And so when a new young leader who is a son of David is announcing that his kingdom is coming to your town, what do you hear? It's time. The revolution is about to begin. Now we fight back. Now we take a stand, take up sword, get ready to lay it all on the line. This is the way the revolution begins. But then Jesus does not go that direction. Jesus does not say the revolution is at hand. The kingdom is here. Take up arms, take up swords. What does he do? He tells people, cleanse yourself of your own moral evil. Repent. That's remarkable. Cleanse yourself of your own moral evil. Repent. Something people then and, and certainly today more so don't want to hear. Like we want to hear, yeah, it's, it's, it's time, man. Let's go. Let's go take out the Romans. He's like, no, repent. Cleanse yourself of your own moral evil. See, one of the things that we're really good at is we're really good at spotting evil out there. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong with the world. I, I bet you I could fix that. I bet you if I had it my way here, and we're not good at seeing the evil in here. And trust me, there's evil out there, right? There's a lot of evil and brokenness and wickedness out there. But Jesus also says here. And when someone tells you to like repent or, or we have to deal with the issues of evil, if your first inclination about thinking where evil is primary located is always out there, it reveals something about your posture and your state and your opinion of yourself. When someone says confront evil and the first inclination is, well, it's obviously out there with someone else, it reveals something about you. Jesus says, look, look in your own heart. It's not saying don't address evils out there. Those matter. But first, look here. There's this sort of legendary story. I, whenever I, I share illustrations or stories, I do my best to make sure they're actually true because believe it or not, a lot of stories and like illustrations that, that are told actually aren't true. Uh, I think this is, it, it looks like it checks out, but I couldn't actually find the newspaper in which it was recorded. So um, nevertheless, it illustrates an important point. In 1910, the London Times asked a question to its audience for people to submit essays on what is wrong with the world. And there's this story that G.K. Chesterton, who was a theologian and social commentator, responded to the Times in 1910 um, to respond, what is wrong with the world? And it is said that he submitted a letter for the newspaper to address the question, what is wrong with the world? And this was his response. Dear sirs, comma, I am. What is wrong with the world? I am. That was his response. 
Now, that certainly sounds like G.K. Chesterton if you're familiar with his writings and his thoughts. Um, But even if not, the point still stands. It's like the posture before God. Lord, I've got all kinds of stuff. Forgive me. Help me. And the Bible has this idea that if you are faithful in the small things, like if you actually start dealing with yourself, that then you might be granted the responsibility to clean up evil elsewhere. But one of the problems of the modern mind is that it's always out there and it's never here. And then probably one of the other worst things is we calibrate to our immediate proximity of friendships. So for instance, um, most of the time you're about as good of a person as your immediate peer group and family are. Like you measure yourself in relationship to those around you. This is why you know you do this. Because like if you got a family that's kind of crazy and you go like, I'm not that crazy, man. I'm okay, man, compared to them. That's like, because you, you, you calibrate yourself around. It's like, or if you, you grew up with the, you, in high school, you had a bunch of crazy friends. It's like, mom, or like you tell your mom, mom, all my, they're, they're getting like C minuses. I'm pulling in a B plus. That's pretty good. And your mom's like, oh, I don't care what the other kids are getting. I'm concerned about you. And by the way, this, this is true, not just in a comical level, but this is how things like genocide and human like evil reaches its climax. Because groups of people will always just judge themselves by by the standards everyone else is doing. And so the whole culture slips into depravity and you're going, well, at least in my relationship to the rest of the depraved culture, I'm not that bad. And it's how you could slowly sink further and further. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Goes on. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's an important reversal taking place. In the first century world, if there were men who wanted to seek after an apprenticeship with a rabbi or a teacher, they would seek him out, they would show their credentials, and sort of like apply and say, can we be your followers? Can we follow you, rabbi? And the rabbi would look at them, review their credentials, maybe test them, and he would accept or deny them. Jesus reverses this. Jesus goes out and chooses his disciples. He chose them first. Which, by the way, that picking of disciples is the same pattern of how Jesus gets to any Christian. You didn't seek after God. He sought after you. He called you by name and brought you in. And so it's a reversal of the process. Think about it like this. We, we still practice this sort of, this kind of thing in the modern world. So once you graduate high school and you, what do you do? If you want to go to college, you apply to a college. You show them your grades and, you know, hey, I never, was never suspended. That time I got expelled, there's a good reason why. Um, you know, and then the university decides if you have the credentials and merit to be accepted into the school. With Jesus... It's as if the university sought you out, but even more so, a university that you had no business being a part of. Because guess what? You didn't have the credentials or merits to deserve Jesus, but he sought you out anyway. And despite your failing credentials and merits, he invites you into the family and brings you into discipleship. And then with these guys, Andrew and Peter, He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And if you've grown up at church in a long time, you've been there, you've heard this a lot, right? You become a Christian and you don't don't fish after little fish, man. You're going to be fishers of men. And then some of you might be, some of you will know what I'm talking about, some of you won't. But kind of in church culture, um, there's a, they tie this directly to evangelism, becoming fishers of men to evangelism, which isn't a bad thing. It's probably a good thing. But then you start to build strategies off of what it means to be a fisher of men. And they take like fishing and apply it to evangelism. So watch, some of you are going to shake your head. You're going to be like, evangelism is like fishing, man. You cast out the bait, you know, and, and you wait, you, you, you cast it out where you think some fish are. And then you wait for the fish to bite and then you hook them and bring them in. And then it goes into all kinds of like, I've seen stuff like this. Like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to have a men's, like a men's barbecue and we're going to have the best ribs, okay? Because that'll bring in the fish, okay? They don't want Jesus. 
but we have a lure with some hooks on it. That's the ribs. And when the men come and they have their fool, that's when we have pastor go up and give them a gospel message. And bam, we set the hook and bring them in against their will. Whether they like it or not, they got the ribs and they're hooked. And they're coming in, they're, you know, barbed hook. They can't get away. Now, there's a couple problems with that. One, the gospel isn't fake bait that we're trying to trick people with. It is the most beautiful, powerful message on the face of the earth. You are to merely present it and to tell it and watch God do his work. He moves. You present it. It's not a fake lure. Secondly, um, that's a modern fishing example with fishing poles and lures and hooks. That's not what the disciples were doing. They had nets, the big nets with weights on the end, and they'd throw out the net and it would sink and it would gather fish. So most likely the image is an image that Jesus uses later in the gospels. It's this idea of gathering the fish unto Jesus. That's probably what the image is. It's not, get them. But I've seen this, and some of you, if you've grown up in church a long time, you've kind of seen stuff where it's like evangelism almost becomes like, we got to trick people to come and then we get them. We hook them. Now, quick disclaimer. If, however, you want to have ministry events with ribs that are good and people decide to show up, that's a good thing still. It's a good thing. You're just, don't, don't picture it as tricking them with the ribs and then hooking them with the barbed hook. Don't picture it as that. But we fully support at this church, rib ministries, <laughs> to reach people. And they can be used to effectively gather the loss to the Lord. So that's just a quick disclaimer. And then it says, immediately they put down their nets and they followed Jesus. This powerful image of leaving your nets behind. And for them, the fishermen, um, this was a, a legit business. Sometimes it's said like, these guys were poor fishermen. They were peasants. They were barely making it. Fishing in first century Israel in the Sea of Galilee, that's a successful small business. It's not like super rich. They ain't like Elon Musk and Tesla. They're not filthy rich, but they're successful small business owners. And so Jesus calls them and when they leave behind their nets, that's a powerful symbol of them leaving behind their livelihood, their provision, their career, their means for providing for their family. Later on, you remember in the gospels, they, they say, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus didn't respond with, no, I know you didn't have anything, man. You were so poor, you didn't have anything. You just knew you saw me multiply some fish and you were hungry and you wanted some free snacks off of my miracles. Like, no, they, they, had, they had stuff. And there's an important principle in that symbol. As you may not be a fisherman with nets, but whenever you come to Jesus, there's something you have to leave behind. If you're going to follow Jesus, there is always things you have to leave behind. And it will cost you something. But it's worth it. They leave behind their nets and follow Jesus. And every Christian is called to do that. There are things in our lives that we can't take with us if we're going to follow him rightly. We leave those behind and follow Jesus. This pattern is repeated. Jesus calls two more disciples. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Same pattern. Jesus calls two more fishermen, calls them into discipleship, and, and they leave behind their careers, basically. And then our section ends with this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I want you to notice what occurs when Jesus is announcing his kingdom. It's the inbreaking of the rule and reign of a new king onto the kingdoms of men. And what is occurring? Healing, repentance, recovery. Now think about that for a moment. Every other single human revolution up until this point and to today every single human revolution, every single 
overthrowing of a kingdom and establishing a new ruler. Every time that occurs, it is filled with bloodshed, violence, and death. That's how kingdoms are overthrown in the kingdoms of men. In the kingdoms of men, kingdoms are overthrown with bloodshed, violence, and death. When God's rule and reign comes to bear on the kingdoms of men, what occurs? Healing, repentance, forgiveness, restoration. And you see this inbreaking occurring in these supernatural miracles. Now, I want to read them to you very slowly because I, I think the author is doing this intentionally. People are being healed from every disease, every affliction. And it says, verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, people with pains, people oppressed by demons, people having seizures, people who were paralytic, and he healed them and great crowds followed him. There's this big list and it's as if to say Jesus has authority over all of these different things. It's not just like one type of miracle. Jesus is bringing healing, restoration to all of these things. It's a demonstration of his authority over the full spectrum of the human plight. Now, one of these things that's listed is important to note. It says he's, he's healing people who are oppressed by demons. One of the things that happens in, oftentimes in Christian academic circles, but it certainly happens in, in churches as well, is this sort of looking down upon ancient people. And it's real subtle, but it looks like this. It says, you know, people, were, people just were dumb back in the day. They didn't have modern science like us. They didn't know uh, about all of these conditions. And so uh, oftentimes they would attribute um, normal sicknesses, normal issues that we know can be cured with medicine to demonic oppression. Ancient people had categories to distinguish between being sick, having diseases, being paralytic, having seizures with demonic oppression. This is clearly listed. There's a difference between these certain types of seizures, paralytics, these types of diseases and afflictions, and yet they still had a category for the spiritual realm. They weren't dumb. It wasn't as if anytime someone got a toothache, they, well, that's demonic. They had means and mechanisms by which to differentiate these different types of things. And I say that today because, again, as a person living in the modern world, you occupy a time and place where you're completely saturated in materialism so that spiritual realities are divorced from our everyday thinking. If you are going to navigate the cultural waters that you now find yourself in, you have to understand that there's a spiritual reality at work in this present world. You'll never, you'll never navigate these waters without, without understanding that. And I'm not saying that, don't hear me, there's always, there's always extremes where people are going to say, yeah, the pastor talked about spiritual realities, and then you're looking and you're, you're seeing like demonic activity everywhere you look. You know, James warns against this. He's like, you think you sin because the devil's tempting you? Just your own evil flesh, man. Can't blame this on the devil. You're, own, you're, you're wicked. Or, or, or then you can... The opposite extreme is just to be like, okay, we know that those categories exist, but you know, we're going to pay no attention to this stuff. There is a spiritual reality. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Do you understand this? Other human beings are not your enemy. You are an enemy of God, but while you were an enemy, Christ died for you. Human beings are not the enemy. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And if you're going to make it in the crazy times that we're living in, you have to understand there's more at work than just the physical. There's a spiritual reality. And people back then weren't dumb. They knew it. And they knew how to interpret things. Now, I want to kind of just tie all this together and briefly wrap up. One of the things that the fishermen might have been facing and what you face today is the insecurity that says, what can I actually offer the kingdom of God? You know, when they were leaving behind their nets, it's like, what, do, what are fishermen going to offer the Messiah? What can fishermen offer the kingdom of God? And in one sense, the answer is nothing. 
in in your own strength, you you really can't offer much. I mean, he's an infinite God that's all-powerful and all-knowing. You don't contribute much to the infinite, right? But when you allow yourself to be moved and shaped by God, and when you follow Jesus, he uses you, and things just happen. So what do fishermen offer the kingdom? In and of themselves, nothing. But in submission to Christ, a whole lot. And that goes for every single person in this room. In and of yourself, you can't bear fruit. You don't have much to offer. But when you abide in him, you bear fruit and you bring something to bear to his kingdom. Now, I want to additionally point out that this looks ordinary most of the time. Because whenever you start talking about discipleship and following Jesus, there's a temptation to romanticize that. Like, and this happened, this happened like, for those of you who grew up in youth group culture, um, in my time, like in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, you went to a youth group, like you'd go to a conference or a big event, and they'd tell you, if you trust in Jesus, you can be a world changer. You will change the world. And, you know, some of you remember this. And it was like, I raised my, I want to be a world changer. And you leave and you're going, by Christ, I'm going to be a world changer. And then two years pass and you ain't changed the world. Three years, you still ain't changed the world. Five years, you ain't changed the world. At 10 years, you're going, I ain't changed, I ain't changed the country. I didn't change the state, man. And then you have this, this super pessimistic reflection where you go, I didn't change the world. I, I haven't even changed myself. It's been 10 years since I committed myself to being a world changer, and I haven't even changed myself. Because you can romanticize this, this vision of discipleship and following Jesus. And in reality, what does following Jesus look like on a day-to-day level? It means walking humbly with your God, serving others, sacrificing caring for other people. And, and here's the crazy thing. When you do those ordinary things, what is truly extraordinary can happen. And if we went around and shared stories, we would have, we would have incidences of this. For example, you might have a story where it's like, I showed up to this person's house. They were going through some tough things and I just let them cry on my shoulder. And I thought it was going to be like five minutes of crying. And after 30 minutes, they were still crying. And the Bible says to weep with those who weep. So I just let them cry. And then at the end of it, I said, can I pray for you? And I prayed for them. And then once a week, I checked in on them saying, how's it going? Can I pray for you? And you know what's crazy? After 10 years of doing that, they became a Christian. And all I did was let them cry and check in on them and pray with them for 10 years. And that's truly an extraordinary thing. See, oftentimes we have these grand visions of that we're going to go change the world. It's like, just be faithful in the little things. God might call some of you in this room to go change the world. I'll be happy for you. Go change the world. But the way God's kingdom works is for the most time, it's ordinary people doing ordinary things consistently, not in a romanticized version. And God uses that in powerful ways. Powerful ways. Don't worry about changing the world. Just worry about reaching one person. Let me tell you this. If you spend your whole life just trying to do this, walk humbly with your God, service and sacrifice and love one another. And at the end of your life, your influence and your ministry helped bring one person to Jesus. Do you know the power of that? The Bible says angels rejoice in heaven at one person. If you actually cross into heaven and someone's there to thank you that and tell you you were a part of me following Jesus, man, that's enough one precious life dedicated to Jesus. Man, that's enough to rejoice. If the angels are rejoicing over that, certainly we can too. So I say this as a big warning, as we continue in our journey through this gospel, and we talk about following Jesus, don't romanticize that and make it some big Marvel movie where you're the hero and you kill Thanos and Jesus thanks you. Like that's not the way it works. Be humble Walk faithfully with your God. Serve and sacrifice and care. Get your hands dirty. So it's, this isn't a, it's a little bit of a quick, quick plug for something um, that actually embodies this. Uh, on Saturday, October 23rd, we've been doing this for years if you've been coming to the church where we take a day and we just serve our community. Um, we do different projects. There's one of these things in all of your seats. You can pull it out and look at it. Different projects around the city and it's just a little way for us to get our hands dirty and serve our community. 
And it's one of those things, it's not flashy, it's not like, and then we led 10,000 people to the Lord. Um, but it shows our community that we care. And whenever we do this every year, we have tons of people in our community take note of this. We thank your church so much for coming and serving in this way. And so my encouragement today is after, after service, go online, sign up for one of these projects. There's family, there's ones for families, ones not for families. There'll be a barbecue after. It's a little thing, but it's the little things that add up over time. And when you do those faithfully over time, the ordinary can accomplish extraordinary things. We're going to transition to communion and, and close with a worship song. Following Jesus is something we do in ordinary times, extraordinary times. We do it in good times and bad times. When you're John the Baptist and you get arrested, or you're someone else and you're living the good life. I'll give you a hint at what, not a hint, I'll tell you what happens to, to the first two fishermen who are called, Peter and Andrew. They would follow Jesus in good times and bad times. Sometimes they weren't exactly faithful. Sometimes they were extremely faithful. But they treasured Jesus enough to continue following him to the end of their lives. And on the day of their death, they found Jesus more precious than life itself. Peter, for his testimony of Jesus, would be led to be crucified. Upon his death, he said he was unworthy to die in the same manner of his Lord, so he's crucified upside down. His brother Andrew had the same fate. As he was being led to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of the Lord. So church tradition says that he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. It's called St. Andrew's cross. What they learned over time was that it was worth following Jesus in good times, in bad times, in ordinary times, in extraordinary times. He's worth it. He's always worth it. And better to be with him in the storm than without him in the good life. He is our treasure. He is our hope. Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Today, let us remember that we didn't have the credentials or the merits or the grades to get into that school. We didn't have the credentials or merit to be brought in and invited by Jesus, but Jesus sought us, an undeserving bunch, and made us worthy because of his death. So let's remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And as we always say, Paul the apostle tells us, we take this as a way to say, we're going to faithfully proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so Lord, may we be faithful to whenever that day may be when you call us home, knowing that nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever ultimately harm us. You will have the last word, Lord. Jesus has the last word today and forever. So Father, as we close, we pray that your son Jesus would be exalted in this place, that we would worship him for he is worthy. You are holy, you are righteous, but yet you love and bring us into your fold. And for that, we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.